In this episode, we're going to talk about what goes into making one of my heritage, one-of-a-kind pieces of jewelry. I'm going to share, let you on the inside of one of my favorite design inspirations. You'll never guess what it is. We're going to take a trip down memory lane, and I'm going to share a few notable people that I've made jewelry for in the past and some stories behind that. We're going to explore what is going on with the Instagram algorithm and figure out if we could stay ahead of it, if we should try. And then finally, should we self-censor? Should this podcast be self-censored? Should we censor what we're going to say on it for business purposes or other purposes? Should be interesting. I think we have a good show. So with that, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine, Chad. There he is. A second ago before we started filming, um, gosh, there was a car. I, I, we say it every episode, and it's almost becoming really annoying, but this one was notable. That was the loudest car I've ever heard. It was so loud, I couldn't form thoughts while it was happening. I just like paused and kind of stuttered. And you related it to uh, torture. It felt like I could imagine if I had to listen to that for more than a minute straight, my psyche would start to wither. Yeah. It was so loud. Yeah, I, it was very, very loud. I and can I'm, barely hear. And I'm generally a fan of loud car exhaust, but that was like Guantanamo Bay levels of, <laughs> yeah. of uh, exhaust. Exactly. A grenade going off in your ear type of thing. Um, okay. Show and tell. So we have a fun little camera here if you're watching. This is a piece of my Heritage One of a Kind. This came out in the last collection. And uh, I kind of just wanted to share. This is made by Tufa Casting. Tufa, if you're unfamiliar, is called, um, or it is petrified ash. So it's, it's, it's actually just found on the side of the road. I think I mentioned that in a previous episode. But you carve, oh, I should have brought a piece of Tufa. What am I thinking? Um, you carve a piece of this petrified ash and um, into the shape you want. You can even carve designs into it. And then you melt down metal and then you pour it into the mold. And the reason why a lot of people like this method is because it's fully custom from start to finish, which I want to show you the texture. You can kind of see the texture. You can definitely see it on the inside here. It's got my signature stamp on the inside, and this is made using recycled silver, but it's coin grade, 0.900, and that's one of the, I don't know, there's, there's very few people that make uh, jewelry in a tufa cast form, um, just because it's so primitive and, and it's, it's not so super available. It's kind of hard to get some tufa, but people will go to... Um, Arizona, yeah, I'm here. I'm showing the uh, thing. It's not, I want to show you this ring. And this is Kingman turquoise. Kingman in Arizona, of course. But it's waterweb turquoise. It's a little bit rare. High grade. Some of the nicest stuff you can find. But yeah, you carve this piece. And there's as a video, actually, uh, if you have it pulled out. So this is the process of making it. This is tufa, tufa rock, tufa stone.
it looks almost prehistoric like like yeah. even just c- the act of creating it you know just sure your mold a little asmr for those just listening i'm carving a piece of this petrified ash and then you ventilate it that's what those lines are so that the air can escape as you're pouring in the silver Otherwise, the silver won't go to the bottom. And then you do what's car- called carburizing, and that's where you, you uh, it turns it black, prevents it from sticking to the, the tufa. And of course, you melt down your silver. You can use coins, old silver coins, old scrap, and then you pour it in. And then you, so essentially, you pour bars. What I do with these cuffs specifically is I've, that video uh, shows, and I'm, I'm actually working on one for a, a brand called, well, I won't say that right now, but, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I'm working on a piece right now, but um, you just, I just pour the bar, and then you clean up the bar after, it's just the piece of silver, and um, it looks like a piece of junk, and then you have to soak it in like vinegar water, and then it cleans it all up. I like to, some people don't like the texture that it leaves, but I think it adds to the character and the uniqueness. It's kind of like a fingerprint in my perspective. And then you add your stamps. On this one, I have a, um, you want to show it? I have a little like uh, curved arrow stamp. And so I made that stamp from scratch. And then all of the other stamps, of course, as well. But how do you make the actual stamp? Do you carve it out of a material or do you mm-hmm. have to like, how, like is that like an imp- Impression, or can you describe that process a little bit? I should have brought some stamps too. I'm terrible at this. Uh, yeah, it's just a piece of steel. So you could use like old rebar. Um, you could use old nails. I've got a few stamps that I use a lot um, that are nails. Um, and yeah, so you, you heat it up. It, it kind of works opposite to silver, actually. Silver, once you quench it, once you heat it up to, until it's like red, and then you quench it, it actually preserves the softness of the metal. I think they call it dead soft at that point. And with uh, steel, it actually works the opposite. You heat it, but you cannot quench it. If you quench it in, in water or oil, it hardens it. And so if you're going to modify a steel stamp, you got to heat it up. Then you got to let it cool naturally on its own. And then you can modify it. You can put it in a vise. You can carve it, you know, stamp it, file it. And uh, so, yeah, you make your own steel stamps. A lot of silversmiths, you got to make your own steel stamps. There's not really a, a good maker. You could buy real generic ones, but they're real noticeable. And so any real artist or any real silversmith tends to make their own stamps. Um, but even that's like an art in and of itself, so it's, it's kind of crazy. There's an artist I like a lot. Um, it goes by the name Buffalo, and I believe he lives in Santa Fe. He works out of Santa Fe, but he's one of the best Stamp, bank, stamp makers. And you can kind of tell each artist's piece based off of the stamps they use because they're unique. Each stamp is one of a kind. And, and a lot, like I said, a lot of the times they're made by the uh, individual artists. But yeah, there's one other aspect, if you'll do another little close-up, is um, it's called like reposé. It actually comes from Spain, the idea of uh, chasing and reposé. It's a silver... 
or metalworking thing, but you see these little bump outs on the inside. They serve to kind of give you dimension on the outside. So you push out, you bump out from the inside to the outside. And a lot of this technique's not necessarily like super well known. Um, but when you see it in a piece, you're like, oh yeah, that silversmith has a little bit of experience. It's kind of just like an added layer of value to the piece. Um, chasing and repose. There's a lot of little techniques that go into it, but to the, the real hunters, the people that really like pieces, the, the art of it, when they see like a bump out or they see certain techniques, they go like, oh, this guy's been doing it for a while. And it really adds to the value of, of your work. But yeah, these are a part of my Heritage collection. When you see the intro to the show, you see Heritage, you see the Common Trading Post, and then you see St. Poncho. Those are all kind of like the separate independent brands, but all under the moniker of this business, whatever this is. Um, and then lastly, I have this week's release, which is the Triangle Stacking Cuffs. I've done these a lot in the past. And this week, this is one of them here, they have um, little conchos on the terminals. And uh, there's three different patterns that are going to be available by the time this episode goes up. And so you can go to chadbarola.com and you can find those pieces available. That's this week's release. Lastly, cool announcement. I'm real excited about this. I have a buddy, Gage Spees. He just got married. Congratulations. But he's actually from here. I knew him from here in the music scene. Uh, I, he used to play in a band with Chorus's uh, cousin, Chris. And then I, that was the band that I in, eventually became a part of. Um, me and Gage have very similar stories, actually. Because then he moved to Nashville. Then I moved to Nashville. He actually got me my job over at uh, Table 3, which was the first job I had in Nashville. Anyway, so he's a hat maker. He makes hats. You guys probably, some of you have heard of his brand. It's called Daisy May. Well, he's opening up a little store in downtown Nashville, and uh, we're going to be a part of it. So I will be sending off some pieces to display. So if you're in Nashville, go see them. Uh, they'll be there early June, so in a couple weeks. So you'll be able to see a few of my pieces. I'm hoping to get a couple squash blossoms done by the time I send them out, but not making any promises. And then hopefully toward the end of the year, we're going to make a trip out there. Hopefully do a couple podcasts, uh, interviews with some of our old friends. Maybe Chorus can come with us. If I go, I'm getting some hot chicken, man. Come on, oh, man. yeah, do a show. Eddie B's. Um, and then lastly, oh yeah, so we're very, very close to getting in our new studio spot where we don't have to set up every single week and it's going to be so awesome. Um, they just put up the walls. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we can start kind of moving in and brainstorming and what, what we're going to make the place look like. But uh, that's going to be exciting. So with that, let's start the show. Come on. Okay. Doing our tradition here with the Palo Santo. We're going to go down a memory lane together. I, uh, for whatever reason, was going down the old Instagram 
photos and I came across a bunch of people that I made jewelry for in the past. I'm thinking about kind of collaborations who I want to do some collaborations with. And I brought up people who I've done collaborations with in the past. And um, one of these people, so I, I grew up in the music world, I mentioned that, and I was a big, big fan of this guy, Dallas Green. He used to go by the name Dallas Green, and then he changed his name to City and Color. And um, that kind of goes into this whole thing, but I, you know, he had a, a producer and guitar player at a period of time. His name was Daniel Romano. These guys are both Canadian. <clears throat> There's a lot of good art that comes out of Canada. I don't know if you've noticed that. But it's probably all the syrup. Yeah, it's the maple. Um, Daniel Romano was one of my favorite artists um, coming up. And when I was in Nashville, he was doing a show out there. And he, uh, he had Dallas Green out. So I saw City in Color, right? So City in he was just he was just kind of there. And I was like, to me, like at the time, I was like, dude, this guy's like a big inspiration to me. And it's funny how those people change throughout different moments of your life. Like now it wouldn't be a big deal, you know? But at the time I was just like, oh my gosh, this guy represents so much of my upbringing and inspiration and whatever. Have you ever met one of your <coughs> icons or like somebody who's been that to you? In your life? Yeah, I feel like I have. I don't know if anything comes to mind right away, but I've met a number of, of musicians and that sort of thing. One of my favorite bands, Foles, I ran into eating sushi before a show. Huh. And what's funny is I talked to my friends into holding my place in line because I was starving. And then I came back with all these selfies with the band and they were pissed. Like, are you kidding me? You got the best of both? Yeah, they were in the middle of dinner, so I didn't get to go super deep. But yeah, there's a couple moments where it's like, that was big at the time. I don't know if it would be as big now. Yeah. So I see, I see Dallas Green standing there, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. I got I to gotta say something. When are you going to get another opportunity? And it's at a bar, or it's at like a bar venue in Nashville. I believe it was called, uh, not Mercury Lounge. <laughs> That's a meme. Um, I forget what the venue was called. I'm pretty sure it closed down, actually. But it was in Nashville. And, um, and so I go up to him, and, I, and I'm like, what do I say? And I was, oh, my gosh. Oh, such an idiot cringe alert 98 but uh yeah i introduced myself to him and and he was such a well he wasn't very nice i don't want to disparage him um but he wasn't very nice and it kind of killed the vibe it killed the um thing he was he was totally normal like i don't blame him but it's like you're in the i don't know it, it was a big bummer and so it, it kind of really turned me off to the whole situation. But anyways, what was cool about it is that Daniel Romano, who, you know, was a, was a good artist in his own right as well. Very good, actually. I was in contact with them and his band and actually made a Marine. And so when he came through on that, I believe it was on that trip, I met him over at his like hotel and I got to deliver it ring to him. Uh, there's a picture of him on the uh, Instagram there. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. That was pretty cool. Not that he's a good buddy or anything. Mr. Romano, he's a, he's a style icon, honestly. He's had so many different phases of his style from like a real like 
country. Like he went super country. Like George Jones, like really like um bedazzled jackets, the whole nine yards. Very much so appropriated country music in the best way. Uh, not not in a bad way. But yeah, I made a piece for him. Um Another person I made um, some pieces for was Joe Greer. Now, he's a really, really good photographer. Right down my lane of preference style, I guess. He shoots on a Leica, which is out of my price range uh, as far as a camera goes. But we did a collaboration, what was it, like five? How long ago was that? This was uh, 2017. Six years ago. Wow. You know what's crazy about Nashville is that you just, there are so many people that are in the similar sphere as you. This is his feed right here, and we're showing his feed. He's, he's got a very, very good eye for photo. The, the, go to that one with the camera and the coffee. There's something about this reel that's just so good, right? You got the texture of the jacket. The color tones. The snow coming in. A little bit of talking in the background. It's just like the capturing of a serious moment. I nearly cried. Go back. There's one that he did in India. Maybe it's at the top of his feet. Maybe not. Um, go down. Hmm. Go to the one with the birds. No, no, no. Go down. Um, that one on the right, the yellow. Up one, one more up. This one. Can you zoom out a little bit? So you get the texture. I don't know if he's like on a bus or what, but the color of this guy's like wrap on his head, and he's just looking right into the camera. I can't imagine that this was posed intentionally. This was just a moment that he saw a guy. If you've ever watched Joe's, he's actually got a good YouTube channel. You should check it out of like live street photography. And he just captures moments live when they're happening. He's got a, like a whole course on it. This isn't an ad for him, but <clears throat> it's just a genuinely good eye. He has a great, great eye capturing moments. But yeah, I was super honored to do a little collaborative situation with him. Um, he wore my white buffalo temple ring, sold more rings, more of those than any other ring. Got to bring him back. Message me if you want one. I'll make one for you. I don't know if I'll bring him back, bring him back. But <clears throat> And then the uh, chief ring, he had one of each of those. Cool guy. Who else? Oh, Nikki Lane. That was a cool one. That was like one of my first collaborations, actually. And it was before she was kind of like bigger. Um, you ever listen to Nikki Lane? Uh, I don't think I'm familiar. Do a, find like a live video of, of hers. Like a live performance. Nikki Lane live. She's cool. She was like a, a big like Nashville local. She's actually got a vintage shop in, in East Nashville. I think it's still there. Uh, but I found her or I got acquainted to, uh, to her through my first shop that I was selling to.
she's cool. She dated this dude Chase from LA, who has like a, I think it's Highway LA. It's like a motorcycle brand. But yeah, she was a Nashville local. She was like an East Nashville local. She super integrated to the uh, East Nashville scene. And then, but she, I found, I got acquainted to her through this guy, Jimmy, who owned Moto Moda, which was the first store I was selling jewelry to in Nashville. That was a great relationship to make. At the time I had these bangs, dude. Um, just like the Beatles bangs, you know, when they first came out. <clears throat> and uh, I had short hair. <laughs> pretty pretty fun look but but i was walking across the place and, and that guy jimmy who in the shop he's like hey you look like you're like brit pop kind of guy i was like hey what's going on man really cool guy he was like he, he ran in like the motorcycle world he had a physical retail spot it was a really really sweet spot but yeah anyway jewelry making man I miss me. I miss collaborating with some people. If you've if you've got any ideas of who should collaborate with or reach out to, let me know. I'm thinking of a few people right now, reaching out. I've got a few in the works actually. Some you probably know. We'll see if they can happen. All right, I want to switch gears. Let's go to um, my design secrets. No, this is kind of a joke, but I used to go to sleep watching um, this guy. He's an interesting person. His name's Steve, and his YouTube's name is uh, Steve1989. But he, what he does is he eats and reviews um, MREs, like field rations, military rations. And, um, but most, some of them are like from World War II or like World War I. So some of them are like a, literally 100 years old. This is a breakfast ration from World War II, I believe. Now, out of my own personal collection, we're going to be checking out this World War II U.S. Army-issued breakfast K-ration. But when I came across this guy's channel, I had to subscribe because... World War II ration. Not so much because of him, though his videos are pretty fascinating. I can sit there and watch them for hours. Like, looks like something tore right But because of the military design, that little bit right there, the texture on that, that's dipped in wax. It's a breakfast ration. It's just it's like cardboard dipped in wax so that it's waterproof. In wax to waterproof them, and this one here you can see that wax has over the years. It's really preserved it. There's been some warping potentially, or that's always been that way after it was dipped on that. But primarily is like the colors, the text, excavate the simplicity of the designs. I'm going to reseal the box. This is a great source of inspiration for even typography. Like, if it looks good now, I want my designs to hold exactly. time that way, you know. There's something that um, I picked up along somewhere that was like the, the, the most sophisticated design is the simplest. Something like that. Most timeless design, something along those lines. But that's what I like about these is that they, they are, they're timeless designs. It's nothing crazy. You know, it's utilitarian. It says a breakfast ration is B for breakfast on the sides. But the typeface, awesome. Really good. Color contrast. Right. And then, and then uh, obviously, the texture through the dipped wax was super, super good. But I remember this one being like one of my screenshots early on. Like, okay. I need to make something along these lines. This layer. Just trying not to completely mangle this thing when I open it. 
I want to try and reseal it. But this guy eats these. Does it say in the description how old this is? Yeah, I know. I know for sure he ate like 1945, 70 years old. So that's yeah, World War II breakfast field ration. It's got some gluing to do with the flap. But Fast forward to like him eating. Not bad. By this point, it's rusted egg yolks. Oh, gross! Oh, he's, he's plating it on a on a tray. That's so cool. He, he puts everything on a tray. Same tray too. Um, Have you ever been to the Smithsonian in DC? No. They have uh, George Washington's uh, like dining set, his silverware, his salt, pepper, his everything. And it looks, I mean, obviously it doesn't look this refined, but it's crazy that they have it. Yeah, that's pretty like cool. In a glass case, you can see it all. Mm. Anyway. Awesome. And even the cigarettes, right? Like all of these, there's like so many things within this. And then the tins with the key. Like there's so much... Um, I don't know, history and fun and tradition that I would just, it would get me like so stoked, just inspired. That font is uh, Futura, I think. It's something like it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think it turns 100. I have it in my calendar to throw a birthday really? for the font Futura because it's just... Is that a mid-century font? Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah it's Helvetica, actually, yeah, Futura. It like, was created in the 20s and was, was used uh, really popular in like the 50s and 60s. Oh, I didn't know that. I know it's a 50s type of font, but I didn't realize it was created in the 20s. You know, what's interesting about typography and typefaces is that typefaces are normally always created for the medium that they're going to be used on. And it used to be, like you know, type, um, typewriters used to have, they have a specific font for the, the typewriter or even like digital uh, there's a whole history of typography that I, there was a documentary or something I watched and it was talking about how certain internet typefaces were developed be specifically because they had limited pixels to operate within. So certain fonts kind of just created themselves because of the, the pixels that were available to them. And I don't know that that was the case for, say, like the typewriter font, but because there's technology kind of made itself available, I think that's kind of how Futura kind of came to be or Helvetica is the mediums became more relevant and people started to use them more commonly. There's this font that's really popular that's uh, known for its legibility called Gotham. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used it for a long time just because it looks so good. But I uh, was watching a documentary and the typeface designer was actually featured who designed it. Uh, come to find out, he designed this font uh, to be super legible because it was going to be in honor of the victims of 9-11. And hmm. so he knew that there was going to be thousands of names written in this typeface right next to each other, and he, and he wanted to maximize legibility for the project. Form follows function. Yeah, it and totally so speaks to what you're saying. Most typefaces are, are, are created specifically for the function that they will be used for and what distance they're going to be seen at, what medium they're going to be used on, what paper, you know, that type of thing. And what's going to be printing on the paper. And so it's just interesting how design has a utilitarian function, obviously, as well as an aesthetic function. All right. What's next? Oh, okay. So 1924 US posted a thing on Instagram a few days ago where he was exploring the idea that I think some of us all think about, especially content creators. Um, the algorithm. Many of you guys remember early on, it used to be like one-to-one, -one, 
right? You follow somebody, you see their content. It was on a timeline. We call it the timeline for a reason. It's one-to-one. So if somebody posts a photo, it gets posted in everybody's timeline that follows that person. That's how it used to be. It's crazy we have to explain that because some younger people don't even understand that. That's what's wild is that was only, what, 10 years old, if that. And, um, and so, so you'd have you know, instant access to all the people that followed you. But then somewhere along the lines, I remember this actually, the first time I got introduced to this idea, and it was Facebook. Because we went from, in my era, we went from MySpace, where it was awesome. You know, you had one-to-one, you had real direct connection with your audience. There was no algorithmic medium interfacing between you and the audience member. No intermediary. And so it was just one-to-one. It was awesome. Complete um, artist control. And then you got Facebook pages. MySpace phased out. Then it went to Facebook. You made a page. And then you'd acquire likes to your page. And then you'd have access to the people who liked your page. Well, eventually, Facebook got smart. And they started charging you to reach all of your audience, all of your, the people that liked your page. And I remember this because we were, I, was, I was playing a show with um, Poema in, in somewhere. I don't remember where we were. And um, they wanted to advertise the show, but they had to pay for, you know, to, to reach their own likers. And I was like, that's not right. You guys worked for that, you know, under the expectation that you'd have access to them. You invested into this platform for that expectation. And then they throttled you. That seems immoral. That seems unethical. That seems wrong. And so, you know, soon after that, Instagram gets bought up by Facebook. And then you have the same type of thing happening where your audience or the people that have followed your brand or your company or your page, your art, whatever it is, to see your stuff, no longer see it because the algorithm is programmed because they think they know what you want to look at. Even though you chose to follow that person, they've circumvented that and they've created an algorithm that says, no, you want to see this stuff. And then they've, you know, and so it seems like we're being, it's being abused. And so obviously Christian Watson's frustrated. He's experiencing this, uh, this 1924 US guy. And um, he's seeing a throttling of his content. He used to get tons and tons of, of reach He's got 175,000 followers. It's, you know, he's worked really hard to acquire the amount of following he has. And so he posts this post and um, kind of makes the case. Is this thing on? Instagram has rapidly decreased engagement over the years for all of us. Photographs normally, which do excellent, have now had their positions fully relegated to video. Photographs are dead on this platform despite the more popular style of photographs posted. But lately, it's been at breakneck speed. So those of you guys who first got on Instagram, of course, it was a photography platform. But obviously, they've gone more towards uh, TikTok, Reels, so that, because they want to compete with TikTok, of course. And so they're creating more incentives in the algorithm to push people more towards creating Reels so that they can compete with TikTok's um, imposing of their market share. And so they're really, they're manipulating its user base. And it's not genuinely organic and authentic. Okay, keep going. If you're up for a fun little adventure, a year ago, our average likes per photo 
were about 6,000. In the last five days, the average is less than 500, despite posting at peak times, popularized content, or engaging commentary. The culprit? It's not video. What's next? Scrolling my feed, I see a normal photo from a friend, followed by an advertisement, two suggested reels, and repeat. Quote, Christian, maybe you're just washed up. Maybe nobody cares about your content. And he says, no, I know I am, LOL, but I still have more to offer. And the fact that none of us even have true reach to our organic following, I feel, further discourages any use or time spent on the app. Adapt or die. I love this saying, and I understand its application here on social media. But typically, adapt means to learn an entirely new medium that takes considerable, a considerable amount more time in order to preserve and honor the artistry in what's already built. The lack of consistency, even when posting reels content, feels equally discouraging to me, not because I live off of likes or because the more interaction on posts translates to sales, which it does, but because the community aspect of Instagram feels sparse and scattered. Well, I guess I'll just bite my tongue and take the plunge into the wild world of reels. Photography is dead on this app. Not just with me and our 175,000 followers, but with those beyond my talent who have millions. Our work, which helped to build the popularity of this platform via photographs, has lost out to the attention-grabbing and time-consuming art of the reel. Now, pause real quick. So that's what's frustrating, is the guys like him, early adopters to Instagram, which made Instagram desirable, a desirable app to flock to, the ones that created the content, that created the stuff. Now, of course, they don't own the app. So sure, I get it. It's a free market. They're an independent company. They can do what they want. That's true. However, it just seems unethical. It seems like a bait and switch, and that's exactly what it is. So you got guys like Christian Watts, and you got guys like a ton of the early creators who literally set the culture of what kind of content Instagram became known for. And then they said, ah, thank you. Thank you for bringing the audience. Now we're going to pivot. And it's hard because on one hand, it's like, I don't blame them. Because if they're going to compete, they've got to compete with the other platforms, which are TikTok. And so it just puts everybody in a difficult position. But, you know, it just seems like uh, what he's saying is right, though. I mean, you got to adapt, right? You got to adapt, but it's probably, it's, but it's frustrating because it's like, oh, when do I, when do I not have to? <laughs> when can I just uh, expect what you guys have set out there as the expectation? It's like the, it's like the business just keeps changing. The floor keeps changing. We got to keep moving. And so nothing is stable. And that's, and that's not, it doesn't seem fair. Okay. Keep crying about it. Right. Oh, well, I guess that's just a part of business. You got to keep it. Everything keeps changing. Honestly, are you familiar with the term uh, doom scrolling? No. So that, that's a term that people use that they get sucked into the like black hole of social media and they come out an hour and a half later, you know, time has passed. And I, I think that, I, I don't know who said it first, but there's this idea that if a product is free, it means that you're probably the product. Mm-hmm. 
And since like the beginning of Instagram, it's obvious that it's pivoted to where the product is now the strategic, like manipulative game of getting us to look at ads and promoted content all day long. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to know, like how do you win at that platform as a content creator when the goal is not to promote you? The goal is not to have organic reach. The goal for Instagram is to promote their advertisers, you know, and yeah. that, that leaves content creators in a weird place. And it's presumptuous for, for us to think that the platform is ours or made for us. And it's not. The idea and the intention of the creator of these apps was to build an app that's successful, that has traction, that has value so that they could sell it for a billion dollars. That's what they did. That's what Instagram did. That's what uh, I don't think Snapchat did, actually. I think Snapchat really has been in there and it's like, no, we're going to keep, keep being us. They've actually been one of the few platforms that have kind of stuck to their founding identity and principles. But of course, Vine, I think, got bought by Twitter, right? And kind of just yep. thrown away. Periscope, same idea. There's no more Periscope. Did you see Elon did a, uh, a Periscope randomly the other day? I did see that. Is yeah. he going to revive it? I don't know. But the developers like, were testing something. He went live on like, the only Periscope to exist right now. Wow. Yeah, I think I do remember that. One of the f- Dude, Periscope is, is scary. Live streaming is scary. There's like a psychological thing. I didn't even realize that I was getting into that. But I remember I went to the grocery store when I was still living in Nashville. And I was like, I'm going to Periscope this. And I went live. And for whatever reason, I just got flooded in my mind of like, oh, my anxiety. It's like anybody could pop in. And I just got so like flush. And I was like, my hands started shaking. I don't know what it was. But, I, I, but the thrill of endless possibility of whoever could tune in, say whatever, it just felt weird. I felt like naked in public. It was really weird. But there was a, a strange power to that. Another Periscope story. I got invited um, as an Instagram influencer um, to do content creation over at the Opry, the Grand Ole Opry. They were doing like a promo thing where they were inviting a bunch of Nashville local people to do an um, meet type thing. And so we got kind of like special access to the green rooms to go do these different things. And me and my wife, Bree, got to do this. And I did a periscope um, of my experience at the Opryland, the, the historic Opryland, um, the Grand Ole Opry, sorry, because the Opryland is the uh, hotel. Um, that was pretty cool. I wish I still had that periscope. I don't think I can. Is it still an app that you can? I don't think so. I think it's been t- taken down. Bummer. Yeah, the idea of this algorithm thing, right? So I heard this idea to get a little deeper. <sighs> now, whether or not there's an agenda, I heard somebody say that what's happening is that, what do they call it? Uh, it's not CGI. There's like a three-letter acronym that stands for the new agenda that if you're compliant, then you're going to be elevated. And if you're not compliant, then you're going to be punished. I experienced this in 2020 when I kind of spoke out against... Is that the ESG? ESG, that's right. Environmental, social... Social governance. Governance, yeah. So I, I heard this idea, and I'm, I imagine it's probably true, that if you are obedient to the ESG situation, which is, you, you know, you're, you're 
you're perpetuating the, the official narrative, all these different things, then you're going to be preferred content on the internet at, at large. YouTubes, the Instagrams, the Twitters. Maybe not the Twitters as much because Elon's kind of an opponent of this stuff. Um, I, seemingly. He, I think he just said, there's a quote from like yesterday that says ESG is like the devil incarnate. God bless him. Um, and so we experienced, I experienced, so I, on Instagram it used to be a policy. I don't know if they changed the policy or if it's just something they punished me. But if you get 10,000 followers, you have certain privileges. And one of those privileges was the swipe up to an, a website feature. Correct me if I'm wrong, if you know, audience. But I did notice that other people still had access to this feature, other businesses. And in 2020, I'd, I'd, I was kind of, I got in trouble for speaking out on a few of these issues specifically, and I'll be vague for the sake of YouTube. Um, masks and certain therapies, force, force therapies. And uh, in, in, the, in, the, in our business is being required to, to, you know, enforce these types of things. And so I, I came out against that. And I believe that I got, just simply from mentioning the words, um, I got punished. I could no longer do the swipe up features. I was getting, um, as Christian Watson seemed to refer to, because he's an activist as well. He's an activist on, he's a Christian and he's anti-corn. He's anti-objectifying um, of women, that type of thing. And he's a pro-Christian. He's a t- he shares his testimony. He's a really awesome dude. But <clears throat> I imagine in his imagination, he's seeing that I'm, he's, he's getting punished for his public views. And so there's this idea that if you're not obedient to the ESG, the official narrative, then you're going to be relegated to the digital ghetto. I heard somebody coin it that term, and I thought, wow, that's pretty powerful. That's pretty interesting and kind of alarming. Is on certain of these platforms, the main ones, of course, there's, there's, a, there's other ones like Gab, Rumble's an interesting one, of course, <clears throat> that if you challenge power, you're going to get punished and throttled. Shadow banned. We've all probably heard that term. And that's not good because it's pretty authoritarian control through third-party means. And we've seen, actually, funny enough, that a lot of these platforms are integrated into the three-letter agencies in government. And so all that to say, that's actually a perfect transition. You got that Elon clip? It brings me into this next topic of how it's just, you know, I struggle because I'm a business owner. My livelihood is on the line. Things I say here have, have a real life consequence, uh, both in, in my audience and them, you know, rejecting me or my product, but also in my reach potentially. And I think that I, obviously I, I fear, relatively fear being relegated to the digital ghetto, which could very well happen. Um, but Elon kind of gets questioned on this idea because he, he's kind of quizzed. He's been going off, as many of you guys know, he's only bought Twitter a year ago or so um, for $45 billion, something crazy. And, um, and now it's worth like half that or something. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But he gets asked about, should he 
continue to speak freely on his own platform about speech, which is, in his mind, the public square? Should he continue to speak freely even though advertisers don't like it, even though they're controversial points, even though they may be true? And this is what he... This is how he responds. You don't see, I mean, in terms of when you're going to engage. I mean, for example, even today, Elon, you, you, you tweeted this thing about George Soros. Well, I'm looking for it because I want to make sure I quote it properly. But, I mean, you know what you wrote. But you basically... I think it reminds me of my veto. This is like, you know, calm down, people. This is not like made a federal well, case s- out of it. <laughs> you also... You, know, you said He's got he a great laugh. the very fabric of civilization and Soros hates humanity. Like, when you do something like that, do you Yeah, think I think about, that's true. That's my opinion. Okay, but why share it? Why share it? Especially because, why I mean, share it? Why share it when people who buy Teslas may not agree with you, advertisers on Twitter may not agree with you. Um, why not just say, "Hey, I think this." You can tell me. We can talk about it over there. You can tell your friends. But why share it widely? I mean, uh, I, this is freedom of speech. I'm allowed to say what I. You want absolutely to- are, but I'm trying <laughs> to understand why you do because you have to know it's got a. There, it, it puts you in a in the middle of a. The partisan divide in the country, it makes you a, a lightning rod for criticism. I mean, do you like that? I, you know, people today are saying he's an anti-Semite. I don't think you are. No, I'm definitely not. I'm, okay. I'm, like, I'm like a pro-Semite, <laughs> if anything. <laughs> I, I believe that probably is the case. Yes. But why would you even introduce the idea then that that would be the, the case? I, I mean, look, we don't want to make this a, a George Soros interview. No, um, God, no. I, so, don't, I don't want to at uh, all. But I'm, what I'm trying... Social pressure. He's I mean, trying to manipulate you know, him. Do your tweets hurt the company? Are there Tesla owners who say, I don't agree with his political position because... And I know it because he shares so much of it. Or are there advertisers on Twitter that Linda Yaccarino will come and say, you got to stop, man. Or, you know, I can't get these ads because of some of the things you tweet. Long pause. You know, I'm reminded of uh, the, the, the scene in The Princess Bride. Great movie. Great movie. Um, where he confronts the person who killed his father. And he says, I, Offer me money. Offer me power. I don't care. See, you just don't care. You want to share what you have to say. I'll say what I want to say, and if if if, uh, if the consequence of that is losing money, so be it. Okay. How do you make? Come on, man. I heard that, and I was like, yes, that's it. You know, what's interesting is that um, there's been a few podcasts we've done, not that we've gotten super edgy, where the day after I'll listen back and I'm like, oh no, did I go too far? Did I say, did I step out of bounds? And then I think, what boundaries? What, what are acceptable? What are my boundaries that I'm making for myself? Or what are the boundaries that others are making for me that I'm confining myself to? You know, yeah, I'm a business owner. And so I think, oh, shoot, you can't talk about these things. You can't talk about your faith so explicitly. You can't be yourself. You can't talk about politics. You can't do that. You're a business. You're supposed to be stale. And then I think about it some more. And then it gets time to like, okay, you got to post this podcast. Are you going to just pause and post it? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to post it. 
And I go back to the first video I posted when I launched this podcast and I announced it on Instagram. But I said, we're going to say, we're going to talk about whatever we want to talk about. And I imagine we'll probably get in trouble. And so it reminds me, I'm glad we, I, I wrote that that way and I, I posted that. Because just like Elon Musk, it's like he, could, he can get in that same mindset where he's, he's, he's an owner of multiple tech, big tech companies. He was involved with PayPal, obviously with SpaceX, eBay, all these different big tech platforms. That I imagine he would think, why are you talking about these things, Elon? You're just uh, the owner of Twitter. And I love his persistence. Because at the, at, the, at the core of it for him, I, I really think, and I don't necessarily align with him ideologically perfectly, of course, but I think at the core of it is he's trying to do the best for humanity in his mind. And there are certain th- threats that come against the ideal world. And an obvious one would be an authoritarian society that says you cannot speak freely. You cannot be free. You cannot speak freely. You cannot say what you want to be. You can't be yourself. And I think he's calculated that in his mind so much that he says, I have to speak freely. Even if I get called an anti-Semite, even if I get, you know, even if I lose half of the value of my company that I just bought, $22 billion, whatever it is that it's currently worth. I think it might be more than that, of course. Offer me money. Offer me power. I don't care. At some point, it's got to get to that point of purity where you, where you don't care, where the meaning of what you're saying is true. And so I get to that moment in my mindset of like, look, I'm not, you know, I said it in a podcast before, but I, my wife encouraged me early on in this endeavor. You're not just a silversmith. And none of us are just our profession. We're much more than that. But it's weird. We, we get these boxes that we pick, you know, we make for ourselves. <clears throat> and it's hard because you're like, shoot, should I self-censor? Is it going to strategically be a poor choice? Am I going to lose customers? Would it be smarter or wiser if I just, you know, didn't talk about certain things? Didn't talk about Jesus? Would I make more money? Would I attract a non-Christian, you know, client? Would I make, you know? And at the core of it, it's like, no. Yeah, maybe. But that's not what matters most to me. I think people need to revert back to their integrity and be honest. I think that's where the value is. Even if there's no reward in this world for it. Because many times there's not. And sometimes there is. You know, I talked about that the first podcast. I was talking about um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They get put in a fire. And I'm sure they had no expectation they'd get out of it. But they did. All of the disciples of Jesus' disciples, all of them, with the exception of John, though he did get boiled alive in oil, died as martyrs for what they believed. 
should that discourage us from being truthful first? Not me. I understand it's, it can be discouraging for that, but I think we need to tune ourselves. You know, in a logical sense, and I think this is really where Elon's engineering mind comes in, and I'm just, I imagine this is what his, <coughs> what his calculation is, is that if we don't speak up, if we don't fight the, he calls it the woke mind virus, if we don't defeat these things, then we won't have a business on the other end of it. We won't have a society on the other end of it. So if we're quiet about these things or whatever, then what are you defending? You're not defending anything. You have an, you know, you have a, they say the only way out is through it. And I think a lot, a lot of lighthearted people want to just ignore it. I want to ignore it. But my conscience won't allow me to. You know, there's also the principle of just being true and authentic that I've been exploring is, I watched this on um, uh, Andrew Schultz. We, we brought him up on a previous episode. And of course, Joe Rogan, the podcasting, the biggest podcast ever. Well, Joe Rogan seems to have this purist mindset about podcasting where Andrew Schultz, he's a great podcast. He's got a you know, very popular podcast called Flagrant. And, uh, but he's, he's very high production. It's like a set. It's like a late night show. And um, Joe Rogan's show is very lo-fi, relatively lo-fi. It's just based on authenticity, conversations. And he just has a guest, and, and there's no agenda, really. It's just like, hey, let's chat. Let's have a good time. Let's explore ideas. Let's have fun. And there's something so pure about that. And I think that it's, it, it's, a, conscious, it's a conscious decision on Joe Rogan's part because he kind of makes fun of Andrew Schultz when he goes on his show, respectfully. But he's like, what is this? All these lights. This isn't a podcast. This is a late night television show. And I, just, I, I took that and I was like, oh, that's, there's something interesting there I want to chew on. Where Joe Rogan, he has like this purest mindset of like, just be you, man. I think he said it before. He said, if you're an interesting person, you should create a podcast. Everybody should create a podcast. And I think that too, you know? But authenticity. And for those, you know, and, and, and so that drives me to be like, shoot, no, you got to be you. Screw it if it's bad for business. You got to be you. And, it, you know, but it's, 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 it doesn't compute sometimes. I'm like, oh, this is a bad idea. Because I know. It used to be my mindset. You don't bring religion, politics into these things like business. Because you're going to turn some people off. Yeah. I'll let you know that I'm a Christian first before I'm a businessman. And so I think that that's, that's a big point, you know. Um, there's this idea that um, for some reason Christians got to leave their Christianity over in the corner. And I get, I get, I get kind of pulled into that idea sometimes subconsciously. It's like, what are you doing bringing your Christianity into the public square, into your business, and into all these things? But at some point, I think that's the reason why we got into this mess, is that the people that do have principles, 
that do have objective moral values, that do have faith in a higher power, in the ultimate reality, in absolute truth, have left that all in the corner. And I don't think that we should do that. I think that that's contributing to the problem that is the society we're currently living in. That's my rant. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, We had some listener questions. So we're going to hear some of those. Chorus has some, I think. Let me pull them up here. (coughs) Excuse me. I've had this. uh, Oh, you have a cough? Yeah, I've had this cough. I I got sick a couple weeks ago. You could hear it in my voice in the last episode. But now I just have this like tickle. It just won't it quite go good, away. Though. It sounds like Phoebe when she gets sick. She tries <laughs> the to sexy to Phoebe it. voice. Yeah, yeah, you got that sexy Phoebe yeah. voice. All That's right. Uh, we have a submission that says, what's the last thing that made you laugh really hard? Mm. I feel like I laughed today in the car. Like it's just like a random thought that I had. And I was like, that's so funny. I'm so funny. <laughs> it's like when you wake up from a dream, and you're like, that was a really good idea. And then you wake up a few minutes later, like more, and you're like, that was really stupid. So dumb. Yeah, you, you can't hold on to those genius. <laughs> yeah. The genius of your sleep mind. Yeah. Uh, okay, I have another one. What are some of your favorite family traditions? We're building them right now. One of my favorite personally is watching It's a Wonderful Life with the fam. That's like a very, very grounding movie. And we watch that every year, every Christmas time. What about you? We have a tradition of uh, me and Gabby on Christmas Eve, we exchange gifts together uh, on Christmas Eve while looking at lights. Oh, cool. So we kind of get a, a break from like the busyness and I work for a, a big church and we have lots of family. So the holidays are kind of crazy. But uh, we we carve out like an hour on Christmas Eve, go look at lights and exchange gifts in the car. And uh, that's how I ended up proposing because that was like one of our only traditions. So I always look forward to that one. Nice. Are you guys conscious, consciously and intentionally introducing new traditions? Is that something that's on your radar? Yeah, it is. I think growing up as a, as a pastor's kid, <laughs> um, a lot of our traditions were kind of like be at church for everything. Mm-hmm. And so even with my parents now as an adult, we are kind of intentional. Like, hey, this is something we want to try to do from now on and, and really spit, set time aside for it, you know? Yeah. And especially with kids, you know, I, I feel like the burden of having to do that, having to introduce those traditions, because if I don't, if we don't, me and my wife, then they won't have them. Right. And those traditions are kind of sacred. They can become really sacred, very, very prized moments that you're going to come to expect every single year, you know? Yeah, they can ground you when life is chaotic, for sure. Yeah, and they, 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 they become fond memories as you become older, and you look back, and you're like, oh, yeah. And so, I, you know, I, I actually screenshot, I, I have really tried to be very conscious and intentional about them, especially around holiday times. Um, cookies, really attacking all the senses. So, like, you know, thinking about smell, Bree's really good. We have a lot of, you know, holiday movies. Like we'll watch certain movies at certain holidays and we'll say no to certain things. Like 4th of July time, we tend to watch like Sandlot. That's a pretty big um, 
tradition for me and the kids and we'll watch Sandlot. That's cool. I would like, I would like more 4th of July traditions, make it a bigger deal. And I think we're going to have more because one of my sons is born on the 4th of July. That is so perfect. Isn't That's that so wild? fitting. It's so me too. All my friends were like, of course, <laughs> for a guy that loves America so much. His son to be born on America the 4th of July. That's a blessing. That's it's awesome. Really, it was pretty awesome. Yeah. All right. I have another one that says, uh, what was your favorite ever vacation? Favorite ever vacation? It has to be my honeymoon. Not by obligation, but just because. You know, I, I, to do the California, the 101, like for someone who's lived most of his adult life just not idolizing, but loving the 60s and the history of California and, and uh, the Christian hippie movement of, um, you know, the Jesus Revolution, that type of stuff. Doing the 101 was just it. And I, had, I think I had done it before, um, but to do it for my honeymoon was just, it was just really special. We did the whole Big Sur thing, but we, before we did that, we went to like Point Reyes, I think that's how you pronounce it in San in near San Francisco. And it's like that lighthouse. Oh, I guess some of the, my favorite photos I've ever taken. Gosh, I love taking photos. It takes a certain mindset to get into, but um, we got some really cool photos, some videos. I actually captured our proposal video. Maybe I'll show that one time later, but um, yeah, probably be in, in short, my honeymoon. We did all, and then we went on a cruise. It was a very, you know, to go on a cruise is quite elaborate, luxurious. But actually, I haven't shared this story. I'm going to share this story because it's pretty good. Pretty grounding. We went on that cruise. And we didn't have a lot of money at the time, you know. We had, a, you know, a little bit of wedding gifts, you know, that was nice. But I wasn't making much money at the time. Bree wasn't uh, making much money. So we didn't have a lot of money going into marriage. But we got on the cruise. We had it paid for. We had all-you-can-eat food. Oh, you can eat ice cream, that type of thing. So you're living the cruise where it's just like all you can eat, just indulgence, overindulgence of everything. And then we stopped, <coughs> excuse me, in Ensenada, Mexico. And we didn't have enough money. We didn't think we had enough money to really take the, um, the shuttle to the destination spot. And they let us just get off and go walk around. But it wasn't like a, a spot to get off and go walk around. It was like, as soon as you left the dock, it was like rough, but we, you know, we we're on the water. So we're like, oh, let's go walk to the beach. But the beach was miles and miles away. We didn't realize. So we walked down the road and uh, go light to light. And again, this, I mentioned this in my, uh, the previous episode about the honeymoon, but I, my, my renewed mindset of like, oh no, I'm responsible for another human being. Like if someone comes and attacks us or, you know, I am the guy that I've got to like, fend off offenders you know you're the first responder but that was really present on my mind during that trip anyway so we go we go down and we try to find a spot that's kind of nice but it's all like this really industrial waste it was terrible really ugly trash everywhere and um you know it was an interesting walk but it was a couple mile walk anyway so we start walking back after we find nothing and um and i'm like kind of paranoid you know like i'm in a foreign country and there's, I mean, who am I going to call? What am I going to do if something happens, you know, other than just fight? And uh, so I'm like, let's just get back to the ship. Let's go. And so we're walking back. 
and we stop at a stoplight and there's this guy who, who in my peripherals are like, I know he's trying to get my attention, our attention. And he gets Bree's attention. She's, she tends to be more nice than me to strangers. And um, he's like, agua, agua. Asking for water. And mostly in America, when you get somebody that's like, you know, trying to talk to you, they're like a panhandler, a, you know, a bum, more so than an actual genuinely poor person. And so, but he was, he was like, well, agua, agua. And so Bree like looked at him and said, Chad, I think he's trying to get our attention. I was like, I know. <laughs> and uh, she's like, I think he wants water. And I looked over at him and I was like, oh gosh. And his like lips were like really chapped. Like you see in the movies, you know, like his bloody lips, like, and he was like not aggressive in any way. And I looked at him and I was like, oh no, look at me. I just had my American mindset of like individualism and just leave me alone. Super hydrated. Very hydrated and fed. All you can eat ice cream. And, uh, and I look at him and I'm like, shoot. And he's like, agua, you know, food. He wanted food. So I walked to the gas station, which was across the street. And I go, we go get, get him water and a sandwich. And I didn't know like the translation rate for the money. Anyway, so I go and I hand it to him and he takes and he's super grateful. Thank you. God bless you. And we walk back to the ship after that. And I just started like kind of tearing up. And I was like, oh man, I was a real poor guy. You know, he's a really, he really was in need. And it bummed it like, and then here I go, <coughs> going back to the ship where I can have all my ice cream. <laughs> and it just was like this weird awakening moment for me. I was like, whoa. There are really, you know, people in need. I wish I could have given him more water and more food, you know, or money or whatever. But anyways, it was just an interesting experience. So, but that was the best vacation for many reasons and that being actually one of them, one of the reasons. One more? Uh, tell us about your very first vehicle. A Mercury Marquis. This was a beater, a boat of a car. It was a gangster car too, a Mercury Marquis, man. Um, oh, and it was funny because I think my mom tried to prepare me like the ceiling because, you know, this is an old like, what was it? It's like an old mobile. I don't know. It was Mercury Marquis, whatever it was. It's a big, long car, classic vehicle. I think she paid like 500 bucks for it. Anyways, so the ceiling fabric was falling in so it had a big like bubble in the ceiling but not only was it a bubble there was scratch marks oh god <laughs> yeah. what the heck oh dude it was like they had wild a wild time in there whoever previously owned that car but it, you know, it was my first car how old was it it was probably from the 80s 70s <clears throat> it wasn't super nice are you looking one up yeah, just trying to see the, the style of it. Was it like this or was this, uh, if I can get it. Like I would, no, that's, that's nice. That's kind of cool. Is that a Mercury marquee? I think it's an older one maybe. Huh. That's pretty awesome. It was a, it was a, a grimy car. It was cool. Like, it, you know, visually it would look better than modern cars, in my opinion. But it was a beater. I used to put five bucks in gas every time I'd go get gas, you know, because I was a little teenager, didn't have a ton of money. <clears throat> All right. 
All right, last thing, final video. Speaking of not censoring, here we go. There's a lot of tranny, uh, transgender stuff going on. I don't know what the right, right word is for the algorithm. But there is actually 72 genders now, which means that men are better than 71 genders. <laughs> boys, boys, boys! Face. Carried away. Carried away. I actually went to a bar that had gender neutral washrooms, and it's kind of weird because I'm just like taking a shit in a girl's washroom. <laughs> and there's like these 20 year old girls awesome. looking at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, this is your idea, 20 year old girls. Pin <laughs> this on me. <laughs> And then I came out and I was telling my buddy it was kind of weird and he goes, dude, this place doesn't have gender neutral washroom. He's just going to the women's restroom. <laughs> he just took a shit in the girls' washroom and everyone's talking about it. <laughs> guess I'm a little more progressive than you. <laughs> all right, that's all we have for you for today. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the show. Love you, bye. <laughs>